This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. One of the enduring messages about the pandemic relates to the disproportionate impact on seniors, especially those over 80. Most reports and statistics show that this population has borne the brunt of the pandemic. The other startling story to come to the forefront is the heartbreaking treatment of seniors in long-term care homes and other congregate settings. Loneliness and isolation are challenges for everyone, but especially for the elderly. Moreover, there are concerns about ongoing health and well-being with many routine procedures screenings, and elective surgeries being indefinitely pushed back in many places due to COVID-19. It's a moment of reckoning about the state of our healthcare system and our treatment of the elderly. Today, we discuss elder care and COVID-19. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joetha Gupta, I'm the host of the program, and with me today is journalist and author Sandra Martin. Sandra has written a number of books over her career, but the most recent is A Good Death, Making the Most of Our Final Choices. That book, of course, received a lot of acclaim because it dealt with the the highly controversial issue of medical assistance and dying time permitting today. We'll get into that a little bit with Sandra, but first we, we will spend a little bit of time talking about elder care during the pandemic because it's an issue that we've touched on maybe six to eight months ago, but it feels like things are really at a bit of a standstill. So without further ado, Sandra Martin, welcome to The Pulse. It's really good to have you on the program. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Now, I want to ask you about what led you to investigate or to think through how the elderly were being treated during the pandemic. Well, of course, I've been following the news and I've been thinking about various things. I mean, everyone has a COVID story and I have a couple of mine. But um, the Globe got in touch with me and asked me if I would think about writing a piece about would we be so um, unconcerned if the pandemic was killing off young people? as opposed to elderly people, because certainly it is the people who are more than 80 who have mostly died in this pandemic. They're the most vulnerable, and the ones in long-term care care homes, a lot of them have been um, neglected. So that's what I was asked to think about. And I did think about it, and um, I was reminded of a conversation I'd had a year ago, which was in what I called the phony lull between the uh, outbreak in Italy and the first lockdown in Ontario, which happens to be where I live. And I remember this friend of mine saying to me, would it be so difficult if the pandemic killed off, culled a lot of the old and and firm in our population? And I went, "Uh, excuse me, aren't you? Didn't we celebrate your 80th birthday? Wouldn't that include you? And he said, oh, but I'm not infirm. And I thought to myself, well, just wait. And that made me start thinking about this. And uh, so I wrote the piece, which you have very kindly read, and you want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And what I was really trying to propose in that piece is that we have a healthcare system, which we of which we are very, very proud. 
but it was set up for a different time and in a different mm-hmm. demographic reality. It was set up when we were the population was much younger. There were many, many children being born. It was in the uh, middle 50s when it was designed. And it was really for acute care in, sh- in hospitals. For, you'd go in, you'd have your appendix out or whatever, and you'd return. You didn't live as long as people do now, and there weren't mm-hmm. so many older people. There are now more people over 65 than under 15. Yet we do not have a health care system that includes home care or pharma care, for that matter. Mm-hmm. So... What we, what we have is one of the principles of Medicare that was in the Canada Health Act when it was redone in 1985, I think it was, is that one of the principles is medically necessary. We don't consider mm-hmm. that chronic care is medically necessary. Why not? Other countries do. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot to go and unpack just there, but before we go any further, in the Globe and Mail article, you say that the treatment of elderly people, of seniors during the pandemic is, quote unquote, shameful. You're not really mincing any words there. Why is it shameful, aside from the fact that, um, you know, we've, is it because, you know, we've let seniors down or is it because we should have seen this one, this coming and been better prepared? What is it exactly that makes it shameful? Well, there are a lot of things to <laughs> unpack in that word shameful and, and what, whether we were prepared or not prepared. I mean, I think that healthcare officials, public health people, they tend to fight, like old generals, they tend to fight the last war. And the last war in this particular instance was SARS. And it was both basically a hospital-based infection. So they wanted to clear out the hospitals because they thought that there were going to be more cases in, in hospitals. So a lot of people were pushed to home care, to, sorry, to, uh, to institutions, like alternative level of care. People who were not in hospital for acute illnesses, but who need, had complex chronic conditions that required a lot of care. And so mm-hmm. that meant that that there were more people pushed into residence. But before that, we tend to have this idea that we want independence for ourselves and safety for those we love. And for our older relatives and older friends, we were thinking that safety was in a nice institution where they would be guaranteed meals every day, where there were other people who were more or less their age, and so that there they would be. They would be safe. But it turned out these places weren't safe, especially the for-profit ones, where there are a lot Mm -hmm. of underpaid, mostly female, often newcomers, who are personal care workers, who are don't have full shifts, don't have permanent jobs, moving from one place to another, carrying infection with them. And they were, it was just ripe for a terrible, terrible result, as has happened during this pandemic. Of course, we didn't know in the beginning what the pandemic was, was really going to be doing. We, For example, do you remember that we thought things were done by touch, that even playgrounds, the, the mm-hmm. equipment was walled off because they were afraid that things were about touching? Well, now we know that it is an airborne virus. So yes. that it is... So a lot of these things happened, but because the care homes were underwhelmed, because they were understaffed, underfunded, underregulated, a lot of residents were locked in there, and they were... Uh, they weren't taken care of properly. And so that is what's shameful. I mean, what I said in the article was, look, I aspire to be a centenarian. That is the fastest growing population in this country, the fastest growing demographic. 
but it's, it's likely I'm going to die before that. And, you know, so that's going to be okay, I guess. I mean, you know, it depends. But what I don't want is to die from neglect and to uh, have no choice, no autonomy about how I spend my last years. I want to live as long as I can, as, as independently as I can. I don't want to be warehoused in the modern equivalent of a Dickensian poorhouse. Mm-hmm. Indeed. I mean, that's a sentiment that comes across quite clearly in your Globe and Mail article, one of the things you say is that it's striking not just the, the rates at which uh, seniors have lost their lives during the pandemic, but also the manner in which they've died. Do you feel that we could have handled the manner in which people have died a little bit better than we have? I mean, so many people in their last hours of, of life were in isolation from family members and these really sterile hospital settings. Did you give some thought to how this could have been done differently? Well, one of the problems, of course, was that in an attempt to protect the people in the long-term care homes, they weren't allowed visitors because the visitors Mm -hmm. might be bringing in infection because we didn't have a vaccine at that point. And so Mm -hmm. they were isolated. And a lot of the people who were going in to visit their, their loved ones were actually providing care. I mean, how many people do you know who go into those homes and feed mom or feed dad or visit with them every day? So that there's an enormous amount of care that is provided, mostly by women, for free in this society. And I think we should care for our relatives. I'm not saying you shouldn't, mm-hmm. but because those unpaid care workers were, were not allowed in to visit their loved ones, the loved ones were kind of locked in their rooms with food left outside or with people they just weren't cared for mm-hmm. and it was it became worse and worse and often there was more than one person in the room that was another problem so that if if one person has um, the virus and another one doesn't if they're in the same room they're going to get it right mm-hmm. you, you you mentioned about the private um, sector involvement in long-term care homes uh, extender care as one that comes to mind there are a number of these horrific stories of long-term care homes across Canada. Do you think the very nature of, of delegating the care of the elderly through the private sector means that we've inevitably ended up here? Did we need to think about this in terms of public funding and make and treating the care of the treating the care of the elderly as a as a social good more than a um, more than a question of, of the bottom line of a company? Well it is a very complicated business delivering health care to people. As you, as you know, um, health care is, is a provincial and territorial res, uh, responsibility. So it's delivered by the provinces, but it's regulated in, to some extent by the feds. I mean, in terms of mm-hmm. federal policies, federal laws, and so on. And the tax money comes from each of us to the federal government and is sent by transfer to the provinces and the territories. But the problem is that we don't have that overarching designation of what is medically necessary to include home care. Now, that's Mm -hmm. the issue, I think. The population has changed dramatically from the time that we instituted universal Medicare, and we haven't kept up with that. So that is going to require a combination of federal and provincial and territorial willingness to make a hard political decision. 
You know, when I think about the vaccine rollout that's ongoing right now, if you can just step away from long-term care for a minute, I just saw a headline today that in in Ontario, where you live, um, a number of people over the age of 80 um, did not sign up for a vaccine. I mean, there's a lot of hesitancy there as well. Do you feel that there's a, a degree of mistrust of our healthcare institutions? After all, you know, those are the very institutions that are putting forward these vaccines. Do people just not trust the institutions anymore because of what's happened at long-term care and because of how badly seniors have been treated? Well, I think there are a couple of things there. One of the reasons that I understand that quite a lot of people who are over 80 haven't signed up to have the vaccine is because they're housebound and we need to take the vaccines to them. And it just isn't set up for that to be the case. So how is a woman, say, living on her own, who's, who's in her early 90s, for example, mm-hmm. is, what is she supposed to do? Leave her house after being housebound in the lockdown for so long? Go on the subway to, to where? to the drugstore so she can line up with everybody or to a, a, um, a province, uh, provincial uh, vaccination center. I mean, why can't we take the vaccines to the people who are living outside long-term cares? Mm-hmm. We vaccinated people within the long-term care homes. Why did we forget all of the people who are living at home? And one of the things, I don't understand why we haven't included family doctors in the vaccine rollout. Why mm-hmm. is that? Does that make sense to you? So that's one <laughs> part of your question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, the other part is they need, they need a little time to, be, to have somebody explain it to them. They're used to dealing with some sort of health unit, some sort of, um, you know, doctor. We have so few geriatricians in this country. That's another thing I pointed out in my, in my Globe article. We have like mm-hmm. 10 times as many pediatricians as geriatricians, when in fact the population is aging rapidly and the birth rate is dropping. We ramped up pediatricians to cope with the baby boom. Why aren't we doing it when the baby boom is now in their allegedly golden years. We just haven't kept pace. And I think it's because one of the reasons is that we, we've, we, as I say, we have the federal tax transfers to the provinces, but then the provinces are supposed to organize health care on their own. And mm-hmm. some of them do a better job than others. But it isn't, there aren't overall standards. And what will always happen when there is a vacuum, when there are lots of people needing care, is that the private sector is going to move in. And Mm -hmm. as you know, innovation precedes regulation. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the problems. It's, it's a vulnerable population, but it's a population that can, that can, has many years left in which to live fruitful and interesting lives and has many things to teach the youngest of us. And Mm -hmm. I, we're not, we're missing out on that opportunity as well. My name is Juwita Gupta, and with me today is Sandra Martin, who is an author and journalist. Sandra, do you feel that having undergone this experience with long-term care homes and now the vaccine rollout, it really sounds like we're almost making a case for community care, for home care, to try and look at different models, because clearly what we put in place so far hasn't been working. 
Well, I think we thought it was working, and it took a pandemic to show us that it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we should have noticed it ahead of time. But yes, there are other countries that have done um, have dealt with older aging populations much, much better than we have. Um, Denmark is a country that most people point to because they realized in the late 80s that they had an aging population and how were they going to do it? How were they going to care for these people? So they, what they did was they organized a program mainly delivered by municipalities in which um, nurses public health nurses, doctors, and so on, would visit people in their homes and encourage them to stay there and provide services. So they would be, they would be helping people learn how to take care of themselves, which is one of the things we don't do now. You might have access to home to a certain hours of care a week, say in Ontario, where mm -hmm. I live. And it can be, the number changes from one province to another and the services change. But they're mostly services that are provided to do things for you rather than to help you do things for yourself so that mm -hmm. you can maintain your independence and learn how to age appropriately. So, for example, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of experiments going on with technology, with sensors to see if, if we equip with sensors that they can not invade the privacy of an older person, but know when somebody falls or this sort of thing, or how to set an alarm. All of these things have to be taken into consideration rather than just shove people into places and give them food, give them whatever, and not stimulate them and not take care of them and let them take, learn to take care of themselves. Those are all important things. So Denmark is a good example. There's another example. Um, um, autonomy insurance is something mm -hmm. that we've talked about. Um, there was a, an economist and a doctor in Quebec who proposed something called autonomy insurance. And this was basically going to be a tax that everybody would pay into. And we don't know who's going to get cancer. We don't know who's going to get dementia. I mean, we can predict that if you've got a certain lifestyle, you're probably more likely, but you can't predict which one of us is going to have these things. So if everybody is paying into a tax that would supply care and let people have the choice to stay in their own homes, that would be a great advantage. Now, this program called Autonomy Insurance was proposed in Quebec under the uh, Parti Québécois and the Pauline Marois government, but the mm -hmm. government was defeated, and that was the end of that. Other countries do that. Germany does it. Japan does it. Uh, Korea does it. There are various places that try different systems. We need to look at those systems and adapt them here for the ones that will work in this country. Now, we have a huge geographical area, so that mm -hmm. is a problem, but it's not insurmountable. I mean, we have tele telemedicine now where you can talk to people if you train them on how to use technology. There are lots of things we can do, but just to, to sort of throw money at building more structures, more buildings to house people is not the answer. And in fact, in Denmark, what they discovered was they didn't need to build that many more long-term care homes because mm -hmm. they were able to help people stay at home. So they actually saved money. After their initial investment, they save money. You know, my husband, uh, as I mentioned, my mother-in-law is now in her late 80s. He loves to sort of talk to me about this uh, psychology experiment where they had two groups of seniors in, long, in a long-term nursing home setting, uh, where one group of seniors was sort of 
left to their own devices and another group is given a plan to look after and the second group ended up doing a lot better because they had more autonomy they had this thing that gave them a sense of purpose you know they watered their plants and made sure it was getting plenty of sun and so my husband's a big advocate of getting his mom to do as much as she can for herself and to remain independent and to make sure that her voice is taken into consideration you think one of the things that has been left out of the conversation around seniors elder care the pandemic We've heard so much about seniors, but I wonder if we've heard enough or as much from seniors. What do you think? No, I don't think we have heard enough. And I don't think we've talked enough about poverty. Mm -hmm. Um, If you retire without a workplace pension, which is becoming more common, I'm not talking about Canadian pension plan, but I'm talking about Mm -hmm. a workplace pension. Or if you don't have, you know, a semi, a detached house to sell, Where's the money going to come to pay for your care in long-term care? I mean, Mm -hmm. mostly it's rent that you have to pay. So we're entitled to health care, medically necessary health care, but that isn't the same thing. Where are you going to live? So a lot of that is another big issue. Um, And it's, it's just very complicated, and it shouldn't be that complicated. We need to encourage people to to be independent, as your husband says. Now, of course, we're living a lot longer. Mm-hmm. And so that is something that we weren't thinking about when we put universal health care into, into practice. So we have to change our thinking on that line. Do you think that something like the autonomy insurance that you talked about a few minutes ago, do you think something like that will take off here in Canada or will people just balk at the idea of paying, you know, more taxes and I don't want to have to pay, you know, so much to the government? What's your sense? Do you think it'll, this idea, is it is it before its time or will this eventually take root? Well, the government of the day is talking about building back better. Once we get the pandemic under control, we're going to build back better. I mean, if there isn't an election, if they're still in, in, in government and so on. What do they mean by building back better? I think building back better includes, as I said before, reopening up the Canada Health Act and changing some things. Pharmacare, home care, all of those things should be included. And that, I think, would be a really enormous building back better thing to do as we age. Mm -hmm. Um, We just have a few minutes left and, you know, we've just seen the significant change to medical assistance and dying legislation in Canada. Uh, What do you think? I mean, you wrote a book about it, so I would love to get a sense from you as to how you feel about some of the changes that have been made to made legislation in the last couple of weeks. Well, these are a long time coming. I mean, it all the reason we have medical assistance in dying, which is, of course, again, autonomy and choice. I mean, the, the patient has to ask for it and has to convince two doctors now it's probably going to be one doctor that this is this is what the patient wants and the patient is suffering uh, unbearably so the way this mm-hmm. we the only reason we have that law at all is because we have a charter of rights and freedoms and it was under that charter that this case was brought to the Supreme Court of Canada and the the criminal code prohibition against assisting a suicide was thrown out in 2015. Now the law itself has changed over the years and what is one of the biggest changes in the law in this new change is that um, 
Supreme Court decision was uh, suffering that was intolerable to the patient. The law said um, a natural that it, that the, you had to have a reasonably foreseeable natural death. One of the real problems with that is that at the what does it mean? I mean, if you are in the very last stages of your life and you may be suffering horribly, but you go in and out of um, of cognition or you have to give up your medical, your pain medication so that you can actually affirm at the last minute before the, the provider, the doctor, or the, actually gives you the, the medication that is going to end your life, you have to be able to say, yes, this is what I want. Well, for some people, that means that you, you, um, you die before you can actually do that before you can get the so that's all it was it it divided mm-hmm. a reasonably foreseeable natural death into two categories that's what the new the changes mean mm-hmm. and so if you are say terminally ill with cancer you don't have to wait until uh, you don't have to confer, affirm consent at the very last minute you can have an option of signing something a little bit ahead of time so that you you don't have to die too early and you don't miss the opportunity because you've left it too long. So that's one thing. For those whose natural deaths aren't reasonably foreseeable, then there's another, there's another route and more complicated uh, discussions and so on and so forth. What isn't part of the new law still is the ability to write an advance directive, especially after a diagnosis, say, of dementia. You cannot write an advance directive to say, if I can, for example, no longer recognize my family, no longer take care of my bodily functions, then I want my life to end. You can't do that yet, but it's still it's being discussed. The other thing is if your primary complaint is a mental illness, if you are suffering intolerably from a mental illness but no physical illness, then that is now is going to be it's been put on hold for 24 months to see if you know that will change at that point these are very difficult mm-hmm. decisions about uh, advance requests for dementia or mental mm-hmm. illness they're very very difficult but just because they're difficult doesn't mean they should be impossible and i think those are the big areas that we're going to have to work on in the future well, you know, I'm sure as this conversation happens, we'll probably bring you back to get your take on medical assistance and dying. Honestly, that could have been its own show. Sandra Martin, thank you very much for being on the program today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was author and journalist Sandra Martin. She was in Toronto. If you missed any of my conversation with Sandra, you're welcome to find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform or head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Sandra Martin for being my guest on the program today. The technical producer for the pulse is Nisreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening and stay safe. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.